The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Demystifying Cold Agglutinin Disease, a visual exploration of mechanism, diagnosis, and the role of complement inhibition in addressing unmet needs. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash WQY860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello. Good morning, colleagues. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to this very early morning symposium. Uh, and uh, I think the title is Demastifying Cold Agglutinin Disease. Uh, I will start to, prevent, to, to, to present the first subtopic and give a closer look at, and, at the new insights in the pathogenesis of cold agglutinin disease. Uh, cold agglutinin disease is a complement-driven hemolytic anemia, and um, you see we have classified it among the secondary complement disorders, in which we have um, most of the autoimmune hemolytic, hemolytic anemias, like cold agglutinin disease and secondary cold agglutinin syndrome, paroxysmal cold hemoglobinuria, or PCH, with, which is an extremely rare disease, at least in adults, and a proportion may be about 50% of the warm antibody autoimmune hemolytic anemias, the WIHA, um, will also be within this category. And uh, to start with, I would like to, to um, mention that today we distinguish between cold agglutinin disease and cold agglutinin syndrome. Cold agglutinin disease is the well-defined uh, clinical pathological disorder that we are going to talk about in this session. Cold agglutinin syndrome is a heterogeneous but similar picture, secondary to, to other clinical diseases, and we are not going to talk about cold agglutinin syndrome. So, Classification of autoimmune hemolytic anemia. Um, first, we have, the, we have the warm antibody type, or WIHA, which can be primary or secondary. Second, we have the cold antibody types. And a cold antibody autoimmune hemolytic anemia is not synonymous with cold agglutinin disease. Uh, in that group, we have... Uh, primary cold agglutinin disease, or just cold agglutinin disease, and we have the secondary cold agglutinin syndromes, secondary to, for example, infections like mycoplasma or Epstein-Barr virus infections, and we have secondary cold agglutinin syndromes associated with malignant disease, not least with ovat B-cell lymphomas. And then we have the very, very rare uh, paroxysmal cold hemoglobinuria. And there are also mixed warm and cold uh, autoimmune hemolytic anemias. Uh, the frequency uh, is somewhat controversial because it depends on the definition and which criteria you choose to call it mixed. Um, the Optimum temperature for the reaction between uh, antibody and antigen 
in cold deglutinin disease is below uh, 37 degrees, and uh, the optimum temperature is often about uh, 3 to 4 degrees. And you can wonder why uh, we are able to produce uh, antibodies with an optimal optimum temperature uh, that far below uh, the normal body temperature. And uh, I think it's a question of evolution. It's a remnant from animals that uh, was similar to the sharks. Uh, this slide says that about 50% of uh, uh, autoimmune hemolytic anemias are cold deglutinin disease or cold deglutinin uh, mediated hemolytic anemias. Uh, I would rather say between 15 and 30%. So, what are the different biomarkers distinguishing the um, different cold reactive immunoglobulins? Uh, in cold deglutinin disease, uh, it's a question of immune hemolysis uh, initiated by low, uh, at low temperatures. In PCH, it's an intravascular hemolysis due to a cold-sensitive antibody. And then we have cryoglobulinemias, which are not hemolytic anemias, in which um, immunoglobulins can precipitate in the cold. Uh, the active antibodies in cold deglutinin disease are called cold deglutinins, as everyone knows. Uh, in PCH, we have the Donald Lundsteiner's antibodies, and um, the cold agglutinin disease, uh, the cold deglutinins and cold deglutinin disease are almost invariable of the IgM uh, class. Rarely, it may be IgG, uh, cold deglutinins of the IgA type do exist, but I would uh, be almost 100% sure that they don't, do not give rise to cold deglutinin disease because they are not able to activate complement. So then we will have a look of the mechanism of disease and to be correct and not conceal anything, uh, the pathogenetic mechanisms does not start where we see in this slide because cold deglutinin disease is a bone marrow clonal lymphoproliferative disorder, not classified as a malignant disease, but still as a clonal disease, and it's recognized as a clonal lymphoproliferative bone marrow disorder uh, by the recent revision of the WHO classification this year. So from this year, cold deglutinin disease is listed in the WHO classification as a clonal lymphoproliferative disorder. It can be easy to, uh, to, to determine it, to, to uh, recognize it, but sometimes it's difficult to, to find it by uh, routine methods. Well, uh, those clonal lymphocytes produce the cold agglutinin, 
And when the cold agglutinin binds to red blood cells, it will agglutinate the red blood cells. So you will get agglutinates, lumps, uh, which will then dissolve through the passage uh, after rewarming to, to um, 37 degrees in the central circulation. Um, the antigen-antibody reaction activates a complement protein complex C1 or C1QRS, and the next step is that you get activated C1S, which is a serine protease. Uh, C1S splits in turn uh, first C1 and then C2, and you get the complex of the split, split products, the C3 convertase, that splits C3 into C1A, which is a soluble protein with anaphylotoxin properties, and C1, uh, C, C3B, which remain attached to the red blood cells. Before this, the cold agglutinin has detached from the red has detached from the red blood cells. From this, from this point, there are two possibilities. Um, C3B can combine with C4B and C2A to C5 convertase. C5 is bound to the red cells and the terminal complement uh, pathway or cascade is uh, triggered and you um, get the formation of the uh, membrane attack complex or C5B29 on the red blood cells with intravascular hemolysis. But in most patients with cold agglutinin disease, at least in stable disease and at least in the absence of acute exacerbations, um, there is another pathway that is more important. Um, C3D, C3B opsonized cells um, are attacked by phagocytes and the mononuclear phagocytic system uh, in the liver much more than in the spleen. Uh, and uh, we have a phagocytosis of opsonized cells, which is called extravascular hemolysis. Uh, some cells will survive, and on the surviving cells, C3B is further metabolized to C3D, which uh, in some uh, way protects the cells uh, from further degradation. So uh, the surviving cells will escape and will be uh, labeled with, which, with C3B, which can be used for identification in the laboratory by the monospecific direct antiglobulin test for C3D. Uh, another interesting feature, and it's a uh, quite recent finding, is that complement receptor CR1 is down-regulated in complement disease. Um, CR1 uh, is a membrane-bound complement inhibitor um, acting at several targets, but paradoxically, it is also a facilitating factor for the opsonization of, of cells with C3B. So it has multiple targets and multiple effects on the complement system, and uh, 
as I said, this is a new finding, and we don't not yet uh, know the, the clinical and hematological consequences. Um, this finding was uh, um, will be presented from my very good colleagues uh, Agnieszka Mawetska uh, from uh, Norway in in this uh, in this ash um, at the poster on and I think it is on Sunday, and I will also uh, recommend another relevant poster by my very good colleague from Washington, U.S., uh, Catherine Broom, who will have a poster on hemolytic markers and uh, thromboembolism and colliglutinin disease, because thromboembolism is to a very high degree uh, a consequence of the complement activation, I think. So now, to, to further illustrate the, the mechanisms of, of complement-mediated hemolysis, we will see a very short video. Cold agglutinin disease is a rare form of autoimmune hemolytic anemia in which the immune system mistakenly targets and destroys red blood cells. In CAD, abnormal cells in the bone marrow produce immunoglobulin M antibodies called cold agglutinins that can attach to red blood cells. This causes the blood to agglutinate in cool conditions. People with CAD commonly experience agglutination in the peripheral circulation, such as the fingertips. As the blood enters the central circulation, it becomes warmer. The cold agglutinins detach from the red blood cells, and the agglutination resolves. But re-exposure to cool conditions reattaches the cold agglutinins to the red blood cells, inducing agglutination. The short-term presence of the antibodies on the red blood cells forms a complex that activates the classical complement pathway. The activation starts with C1, initiating a cascade of immune responses. Next, complement C3B binds to the red blood cells, marking them for destruction, which may occur in either of two different ways. The first way is that the marked red blood cells undergo phagocytosis in the liver, where monocyte macrophages cause extravascular hemolysis. This is the primary way red blood cells are lost in CAD. The second way is that C3B can also trigger terminal activation of the complement pathway through C5B, which directs its membrane attack complex against the marked cell, resulting in intravascular hemolysis and premature destruction of red blood cells in the circulation. Whichever path is taken, the complement system can destroy red blood cells as thoroughly as if they were bacterial invaders. Well, thank you, Peerview, for the nice video. Uh, very illustrative. Uh, and uh, I will give the word to Professor White for the first part of the next presentation. Thank you. All right. So when should you suspect called the gluten disease? Those patients who have anemia uh, certainly should be part of the workup, but particularly if they have skin changes, um, if they have acrocyanosis, Raynaud's phenomena, if they have um, levita reticularis. And remember, those are going to occur in cold exposed areas. You're not going to see it on the abdomen unless they're unclothed. So you're going to look for uh, peripheral evidence of agglutination 
and um, cold-induced circulatory symptoms. So things that you want to look for, again, the vast majority of patients are going to have maybe um, acrocyanosis with Raynaud's-type phenomena, not necessarily cutaneous necrosis. That's pretty rare, but does occur. Um, Levita reticularis. Also look for um, the nose and also the ear. The tips of the ears are common places that you might see some of the acrocyanosis. Uh, pain and discomfort on swallowing cold foods. You wouldn't think about that. That's a central place. But these patients will complain about that. A lot of symptoms are present in these patients even before they have an exacerbation of their cold agglutinin disease. Fatigue, tiredness is a very common feature, and it's a feature we see in a lot of other hemolytic disorders. And it's really independent of the degree of anemia. It's really cytokine-mediated. They may have decreased stamina. They may have increased weakness. They may have shortness of breath, particularly if they're very anemic or if they have thrombosis. And they may have evidence of acrocyanosis. When they have an episode of CAD, then their fatigue definitely increases. You could see there's a 10-point increase, 10% increase uh, compared to before. Um, they have increased weakness. All of these are the same. And they may even have dark urine depending on the degree of intravascular hemolysis. So factors that trigger off CAD episodes, cold temperatures. Now, in Southern California, for example, we don't see exacerbations of CAD during the summer because we're pretty warm. But this time of year, we will see more cases. So we had two patients who presented in the last two weeks with exacerbations of their CAD, and that's because the local temperatures are down to below 50 in some parts of the city. So, um, again, cold temperatures. Dr. Berenson, Dr. Ross see many more patients than I do because they live in colder climes. Wintertime, again, as I mentioned, because of the temperature changes. Um, air conditioning. So temperatures are kept around 78 to 72, and those, that may be low enough for patients to experience um, exacerbations in their uh, CAD. Sudden changes in temperature. So I have a patient, for example, who goes out to do her morning jog, and um, when she gets sweaty and then she stops running, she will notice cold symptoms. She'll get um, evidence of Raynaud's, and she'll have evidence of acrocyanosis as she cools down, especially if there's a wind, if there's a breeze, and that causes sudden cooling. Um, infections, which increase your complement activation, um, surgery, etc. When I was a fellow, we had a patient who died in the OR who had cold agglutinin disease because they didn't read our note and they didn't warm up the operating room. And the operating rooms are kept very cold. So that's a really important thing to remember if your patient's going to have surgery. <coughs> Dr. Broom has also published um, this very interesting analysis 
that looked at the Optum database and thrombosis and thrombosis risk in cold agglutinin disease. We always thought of CAD as just a hemolytic disease, but like all complement-mediated disorders, there's an increased risk of thrombosis due to the complement activation. It's really driven by the complement. And you could see most of the events, almost a threefold increased risk in venous events, but also arterial events do occur. And if you look at the characteristics of cold agglutinin patients, you can see the vast majority will have evidence of hemolytic anemia with low-grade circulatory findings. They may have, or they may not have any manifestations, um, but about 21% will have grade 2 to 3 circulating, circulatory findings with their hemolysis. And some will have a compensated hemolytic anemia, so they have a pretty normal hemoglobin, but will have evidence of um, uh, circulatory symptoms as, as an important manifestation of their disease, even with a relatively normal hemoglobin. So we have a patient. Now remember, cold agglutinin disease does occur in an older population. So these patients tend to be 65 and up, if not closer to 80. And this woman in particular is pretty classic for a patient, uh, 81 years old, admitted to the hospital with severe fatigue, and she has a four-month history of anemia. She previously was very healthy, walked every day, did her activities of daily living. She had mild hypertension, which was treated, uh, but she had evidence of intermittent episodes of confusion, but she didn't have any cold circulatory findings or symptoms. On presentation, her hemoglobin was 6.2. Her LDH was uh, 647, which was elevated. Uh, bilirubin was elevated. Uh, haptoglobin was low, and the reticulocyte count was modestly increased probably inappropriately low for the degree of uh, hemoglobin. So if you have a patient that you think has cold agglutinin disease, how should you work it up? So that's why we have the lab. But processing these specimens is very tricky. And I'm sure all of you have sent for a cold agglutinin titer, um, and it's come back negative. And the main reason for this is that the specimens are usually not handled properly. Um, for example, even um, drawing a CBC, you really need to have a pre-warmed tube, or by the time the blood gets into the tube, which is cold, it's going to start to agglutinate. And so you need to... You need to let the lab know what you're looking for because the technicians won't know. And you'll want to um, uh, have them handle the specimens properly. So for um, blood counts, you want a pre-warm tube if possible. And then they put it in the heat block or in the water bath and then take it to the lab. The same is true for the cold agglutinin titer where you need serum or plasma have a pre-warmed tube, it's, it's carried, hand-carried, or put in the warming bath, 
and then um, when the clot's removed, then the, you can uh, do your titer. But it needs to be kept warm. Um, and if it's being spun in the centrifuge, it's in a warm centrifuge. For flow cytometry, they usually just pre-warm before the analysis. And I'll stop there and I'll turn it over to Dr. Berenstein for the diagnostic algorithm. Yes, then we have already heard something about diagnostic and uh, I'm going to continue with uh, an attempt to, to present the diagnostic algorithm. And uh, first, I know that uh, most people in the, in the US are not used to uh, looking so much in the microscope. Uh, in Europe, it's uh, heterogeneous. In uh, the UK, for example, and in my country, we do the microscopy of blood smears and, and bone marrow aspirates by ourselves. And uh, a typical finding in colidogluteinine disease is uh, agglutination in the blood smear. And you can also see it at the macroscopic level, as illustrated by the, the test, test tubes here. Um, here comes the algorithm to establish the diagnosis. To establish a diagnosis of colidogluteinine disease, you have to have um, hemolysis, and uh, the look for hemolysis can be triggered by the presence of anemia or by the presence of cold-induced circulatory symptoms, like Dr. White's mentioned. And uh, if the hemolytic markers, um, the um, LDH uh, uh, bilirubin uh, often uh, indirect bilirubin and uh, haptoglobin and uh, often retics uh, indicate hemolysis uh, you have to uh, proceed with um, assessing uh, any autoimmune cause of the anemia uh, of the hemolytic anemia so the next step is the polyspecific or so-called simple direct antiglobulin test, DOT, or Coombs test, if you like that better. Um, and if DOT is positive, you have confirmed an autoimmune pathogenesis, and then the next step will be a monospecific or so-called extended DOT, DOT, in which you do the DOT by means of uh, monospecific antibodies against IgG, IgM, um, uh, complement protein C3D and often C3C, uh, and uh, IgA. And uh, then uh, you will find a monospecific dot positive for complement protein C3D. That is a typical and mandatory but not sufficient criterion for a diagnosis of colidogluteinine disease because uh, uh, that uh, positive for C3D just is an indication of uh, sufficient complement activation. Uh, but as I said, you can have complement activation also in warm uh, autoimmune hemolytic anemia and you can even have a monospecific dot positive for C3D only in, even in Waiha because uh, there could be a, for example uh, warm active IgM so 
to uh, establish the diagnosis of cold agglutinin disease, the next step must be a cold agglutinin titer. And uh, the cutoff for the cold agglutinin titer um, may be somewhat uh, arbitrary. Uh, most papers say uh, greater than or like 64. Uh, usually it's much higher, but there may also be cases uh, with otherwise typically cold agglutinin disease and maybe uh, rarely occurring lower titers than, than um, uh, 64. Uh, often uh, it may be because of inadequate precautions in sampling, as Dr. White explained. And uh, if you establish a diagnosis of cold uh, agglutinin-mediated hemolytic anemia, then uh, you have to, to assess for infection or without malignancy. If there is none, you have a patient with primary cold agglutinin disease. Uh, if the patient has an acute febrile uh, infection, the best question is, did the infection uh, appear for or after the anemia? And uh, if there is an overt malignancy, uh, you must suspect secondary cold agglutinin syndrome. Um, if the diagnosis of primary cold agglutinin disease is, um, uh, is confirmed, uh, we try to confirm the, the clonal uh, underlying lymphoproliferative bone marrow disorder. Uh, so uh, serum electrophoresis is mandatory in that case. And uh, personally, I also uh, almost invariably uh, take a bone marrow biopsy and flow cytometry. At least you should take a bone marrow biopsy and flow cytometry before treatment. Uh, I mentioned the diagnostic, uh, as a diagnostic test the direct antiglobulin test or DAT or direct CUMPS. It's a very simple test. Um, red blood cells uh, are added to a diagnostic uh, antibody, uh, usually on a gel card, but uh, it may be also uh, done in a tube. Uh, and uh, opsonized erythrocytes will then be cross-linked by the diagnostic antibody and there will be visible agglutination and the test is positive. And we call the test polyspecific when it's done with anti-human serum as the diagnostic antibody, then the test will be positive if there is, if there is IgG or C3D uh, or whatever on the surface of the red blood cells. Uh, and the following monospecific DAT, then uh, that is performed with a monospecific um, antibody, usually against uh, anti, uh, usually it is, it is an anti-IgG or C3C, C3D, and IgM and IgA. Uh, even if uh, cold agglutinin disease is an IgM-mediated disease in nearly all cases, uh, the, the dot for IgM will usually be negative because uh, the autoantibody uh, uh, is um, detached from the right cells before it can be detected in the lab. And uh, another test that I mentioned was the cold agglutinin uh, titer. 
the principle is uh, as illustrated here. Um, serum is diluted, uh, serum or plasma uh, is diluted with um, uh, saline by steps of two-fold deletion. So you make a dilution of 1 to 2 and 1 to 4, 1 to 8, 1 to 32, 1 to 64, 1 to 1 to 8, and so on, uh, until, well, the, the practical uh, procedure can differ between labs, but uh, often uh, the dilutions are continued until 1 to 5, 1 12. And uh, if there is still a positive test, you have to make further dilutions until the test is negative. And uh, to each dilution, you add group O, um, red cell suspension, and incubate, incubate for four degrees. And you, um, and you um, uh, look for, for agglutination. Uh, and the uh, tighter is the dilution, or the tighter is the inverse of the dilution that displays um, the highest dilution that displays uh, agglutination. So we can summarize uh, to diagnose uh, cold agglutinin disease. The patients must have chronic hemolysis. There must be a positive polyspecific dot. The monospecific dot must be strongly positive for C3D. Usually it's negative for IgG, but it can be weakly positive for IgG in up to 20% um, of the cases. Don't ask me why, but because I don't know. Um, the cold agglutinin titer uh, must be uh, high, and we used to use 64 as a cutoff. There must be no overt malignant disease, and if uh, these criteria are present, the patient has cold agglutinin disease, and we try to confirm the clonality if possible. Uh, by a serum protein electrophoresis, which will show monoclonal RGM or bone, mar bone marrow biopsy. At least we should do that before treatment, uh, because uh, today, and not least today, it can affect the choice of treatment. Uh, and uh, I don't remember if I have mentioned serum, when you, you prepare serum for serum protein electrophoresis, you must use the same precautions as Dr. White mentioned for uh, serum for cold agglutinin titration. If not, you will not find the monoclonal RGM. So, back to our patient, which has uh, who, who has been presented to you. Uh, you have seen some of the results before, but. Uh, some hours after admission, this uh, real patient whom I treated, uh, some hours after the admission, we also had an, a slightly elevated serum IgM uh, by 3.3 by, uh, grams per liter. Uh, I think in the US you say 33 grams per deciliter. Is that no? No. Uh, that's okay. You can yes, you, you say milligrams per deciliter. Yeah, milligrams per deciliter. Yes. Um, and uh, the patients also turn out to have a monospecific dot, strongly positive for C3D. 
so just to finalize this this part of of the talk um, before treatment of the patient, I do it uh, also also in primary diagnosis, but at least before treatment uh, we we should try to find the monoclonal lymphoproliferative disorder um, and um, it usually shows tiny uh, intertrabecular infiltrates, by cell infiltrates, but it can uh, also be just scattered clonal cells. And today, uh, this condition is classified as a distinct um, clonal LPD uh, by the WHO classification system. And then I will turn the podium back to Professor White. Please, Irene. Thank you. All right, so we have our, our patient with CAD. What shall we do about it? Um, and previously, we only had best supportive care, which included transfusions. Um, steroids are of no value in patients with CAD. Um, so we have cold agglutinin-mediated disease, um, you really need to determine whether it's primary or secondary. There are a variety of other supportive measures we could consider, including ESAs. Now, it depends, obviously, on the retic response. In this particular patient, the retic response was not particularly good. So you could consider using an ESA. And these, again, tend to be older patients, and they may not have, their kidney function may not be as good, and so there may be a role for ESAs. Plasma exchange or plasmapheresis. IgM's a big molecule, so it's easy to remove. Uh, but plasma exchange is somewhat cumbersome. IVIG has been used, and blood transfusions. Um, one thing I do want to point out is if you're going to do blood transfusions, don't forget the blood warmer. You need to warm the blood before it's infused. And if you ever walk into a CAD patient's room, it's 20 degrees warmer than outside, than the, than the hallway. And that's because of the blood warmer. So you want to make sure that the blood warmer is used. So there are a variety of other treatments that we could consider. We can watch and wait, but obviously if the patient's symptomatic, you don't want to do that. Um, and then there are patients who have some symptoms, and we can treat the underlying lymphoproliferative syndrome, or we can affect the complement activation. And part of the decision for treatment for treatment depends on the, which of those is the more active component. So um, we have rituximab, we have um, sutimlimab, we have ecolizumab, we have plasmapheresis as options. Rituximab has been used to treat cold agglutinin disease in a single arm a uh, prospective study, they did, had 27 patients with CAD and hemolysis and symptoms, and they received rituximab in the classic lymphoma manner. And 
Only 3% had a complete response, so not the best response. 51% had a partial response, which did include an improvement in the hemoglobin by greater than 2 grams. So uh, they may not be normal, but they had improvement. And there was a reduction in the IgM titer by, in, in the cold agglutinin titer by 50%. But 46% of patients in this study did not have a response, and it took 1.5 months, six weeks, to see a response. So in the meantime, the patients were still in, were still in extremis. Uh, the duration of response was just shy of a year, and you could retreat the patient. And um, interferon's been added in, in some cases. It was well-tolerated, and it does have some effect. What about combining it with chemotherapy for low-grade lymphoma, such as with bendamustine? And in a prospective, the Nordic trial, a prospective trial, uh, 45 patients with CAD and anemia and symptoms, cold symptoms. They got four cycles of rituximab, the classic rituximab, and uh, got bendamustine as well at 28-day intervals. Much better response rate, complete response rate in 40% of the patients. Um, and it also alleviated some of the cold symptoms, um, reduced the IgM, and cleared the bone marrow. A third of patients had a partial response, and 29% of patients did not respond. But a third of patients had grade three to four neutropenia and re really required a dose reduction. And remember, these are older patients, so neutropenia in an older patient is a recipe for disaster. Bendamustine is active. It's relatively safe with the exception of neutropenia. And um, these patients did have sustained remissions for up to 40, um, with 70% being in remission at 84 months. So it has a very long remission rate. Now, a lot of attention in recent years has been paid to the complement system. I won't go through the whole complement system with you, uh, but just to say that we know that there are a variety of different points in the complement cascade that can be addressed to limit the effect of the complement, to interrupt the complement cascade. And we have a, I think we have a video now. The classical complement pathway plays a central role in CAD. Elements in this pathway are activated sequentially, suggesting multiple points of intervention to halt the disease process. Among these elements are C1, C3, and C5. Eculizumab is an anti-C5 monoclonal antibody that inhibits the cleavage of C5 into C5A and C5B, 
preventing the formation of the membrane attack complex, the final step before the red blood cell is destroyed by intravascular hemolysis. Before sutimlimab was available, eculizumab was recommended off-label for emergency treatment of hemolytic crises since it can alleviate hemoglobinuria within 24 hours and stop intravascular hemolysis within four weeks. Only a small number of red blood cells are destroyed by intravascular hemolysis in CAD. So if we want to stop extravascular hemolysis, we need to move upstream in the classical pathway. The C4B-C2B complex acts as a C3 convertase, cleaving and activating C3 in the classical pathway, thus creating C3B, the tag that marks red blood cells for destruction. Pegsetacoplin inhibits C3 cleavage, normalizing laboratory measures of extravascular and intravascular hemolysis and increasing hemoglobin within weeks. However, the cascade of immune responses in CAD begins even further upstream with C1 activation. Sutimlimab is an IgG4 monoclonal antibody that binds C1S, a serine protease that cleaves C2 and C4 upstream of C3 in the classical pathway, and is the first approved complement therapy for CAD. Sutimlimab does not affect the activation of C3 and C5 through the alternative and lectin pathways. Still, it improves laboratory measures of classical complement pathway activity in one week, increases hemoglobin within three weeks, rapidly inhibits hemolysis, and reduces fatigue. Sutimlimab also reduces the need for blood transfusion. Okay, well, that was nice. They did it for me. <laughs> um, so what have we learned about the different points of interruption um, of the classical of the of the complement cascade, so the decade trial was using ecolizumab. It was the first prospective trial of a complement inhibitor in CAD. Uh, it was a single arm intervention, thirteen patients. Um, they had um, and they were not able to be treated for four weeks prior to the inter, to the complement intervention. And they got the classic treatment like you would treat for PNH with 600 milligrams weekly, then followed by 900 milligrams every other week. It was a 26-week treatment uh, trial. And then they had an eight-week washout and observation phase. You could see that the LDH was reduced. Um, The hemoglobins increased just by about seven-tenths of a gram. there were 11 patients who became or maintained transfusion independence, which is important, but there was no effect on the cold circulatory symptoms that you'd expect. Uh, there were uh, 13 AEs in four patients, and it was deemed that those were treat- possibly treatment-related. There were no menin- meningococcal infections. So it Ecolizumab does reduce hemolysis and transfusion dependency uh, in the majority of the patients they looked at, but it had no impact on the cold circulatory uh, symptoms. What about interrupting at C3 and the generation of C3B and and subsequently the extravascular clearance? We know that most of cold agglutinin hemolysis is extravascular. So there was a phase two trial 
um, 28, uh, 48 weeks open label done in the U.S. and Brazil, uh, 12 patients with CAD, 9 with warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and the PEG was given every day at 270 or 360 milligrams per day sub-Q. At day 56, they did an interim analysis, and uh, this was presented at the British hematology meetings um, several years ago. And uh, the hemoglobins increased from from 8.7 to 12.1. That's a huge increase. The LDH, retic counts, and indirect bilirubin all returned to normal levels. Uh, 75% of patients had some AEs, mostly grade 1 to 2, and they were deemed not related to the peg plan. Um, although I suspect that there were probably some related to the pump itself, since it was sub-Q, and there's a learning curve to use the pump. Um, there were no grade 3 or 4 AEs that were considered related to the treatment. So Pegsetacoplan can in- increase the hemoglobin in CAD within the first few weeks of treatment, It reduces intravascular as well as extravascular, primarily extravascular hemolysis, and it appears to be safe and it's well-tolerated. And um, there is a phase three trial that's going to be presented um, on Sunday, uh, so that's worth um, looking at the data. Um, And Dr. Cooter is also going to be doing um, a... uh, Joint uh, ASH FDA Symposium on Monday on cold agglutinin disease. All right, what about sutimlimib? So sutimlimib acts at the level of C1S, so it acts much higher in the complement cascade. It doesn't inhibit the lectin pathway. It um, it doesn't inhibit uh, the alternative pathway, and it doesn't theoretically inhibit the terminal complement pathway. So in theory, it should be much safer with many fewer infections. Um, the CADENZA trial was a, a randomized clinical trial in CAD, 42 patients uh, with anemia but no recent transfusion requirements. Uh, and they were given sutimlimib based on their weight, either 6.5 or 7.5 milligrams uh, on day zero and day seven, and then every two weeks thereafter, and this was a 26-week analysis. 73% of the patients met the primary composite endpoint of increased hemoglobin and without a transfusion requirement and without the need for any other intervention. So very effective Uh, The laboratory measures of the complement system were improved within a week. The symptomatology that the patients reported was improved within a week of treatment. Uh, CAD symptoms were reduced 50% from baseline. And again, the fatigue scores in particular um, were improved within a week of starting therapy. But the cold symptoms, the Raynaud's, et cetera, persisted. So the conclusions, sutimlimib reduced hemolysis and improved the anemia, reduced the fatigue, and it's very well tolerated. 
and the adverse events were no different than you would see in the older population in general. What about patients who are transfusion dependent? These tend to be a sicker population. Um, and again, in the Cardinal study, 24 patients with confirmed CAD, anemia, and a recent history of a transfusion. Sutimlimib was administered the same way as in cadenza. And 54% of the patients met the primary endpoint, so they had greater than a 2-gram increase in the hemoglobin, did not require transfusion or any other CAD intervention. 71% did not receive a transfusion from week 5, so it does take a while for the patients to be loaded with the drug, Um, so from week 5 until the end of treatment. So again, Meaningful reductions in fatigue were observed within a week, and that really correlated with the suppression of, with the WESLAP score, with the suppression of complement activity. Um, bilirubin normalized by week three, and um, 29% had at least one SAE, but none were related to sotimlimib. So the conclusion, sutimlimib rapidly halted hemolysis, increased hemoglobin, reduced fatigue, and had a favorable impact on hemoglobin, bilirubin, retic count, and fatigue, and was maintained for at least one year. If you look at the patient-reported symptoms uh, and fatigue, you could see that at week 26, the patients, most of the patients, had improvement in their symptoms, either m- very much improved or much improved, um, minimally improved, and very few had um, no change, and none reported their symptoms as being worse. And if you look at the fatigue scores, it's very similar to that. Again, 26%. Um, had improvement in their um, uh, in the fatigue scores um, and um, uh, most of the patients had mild to moderate fatigue what's the indication to use sutimlimib in CAD you really have to decide which is the more acute process going on with the patient. Remember, these are low-grade lymphoproliferative disorders versus acute hemolysis. So if the patient has high-grade bone marrow involvement, then you're going to probably treat for a, with a B-cell-directed therapy. But in this case, for most of the patients, because they don't really have that, you're going to look to treat for the acute exacerbation, for the acute anemia, for the symptomatology, and, um, and um, you may want to consider it as a bridge to treatment. If the patients have failed immunochemotherapy or it's contraindicated, you may want to consider sutimlimib as well. If you look at the differences between rituximab and bendamustine, 
versus Timlimed, the response rate in Timlimed is extremely high. Okay? It's also high in rituximab bendamustine. The duration of response in rituximab bendamustine is very long, whereas Timlimed you have to keep giving. It's short. Um, the duration of treatment, again, rituxbendamustine, you may give X number of cycles of rituxbendamustine, uh, but for sutimlimib, you have to continue treatment. The onset of the response is very rapid with sutimlimib within the first week, um, and uh, it's much slower for the chemotherapy um, and rituxb. The circulatory symptoms don't really improve with sutimlimib, but they do with the chemotherapy. Um, toxicity, um, there is more toxicity, as we talked about. Again, a significant 29% of patients had great three to four neutropenia in this old population, uh, whereas the toxicity of sutimlimib is remarkably low. Cost, they're both expensive, so it now, I don't know that there's that much difference, uh, but obviously sutimlimib is a much newer agent, so it's going to be more expensive. And here are some of the uh, abstracts that you can expect to, that you might want to check out. Um, improvement in the patient-reported outcomes uh, in the extension trial. Um, and um, also... Um, the Part B of the Cadenza trial um, and this, the concomitant use of sutimlimab and COVID-19 vaccines in patients with cold agglutinin disease. I think that's a very relevant uh, issue for patients these days. Um, and then um, the joint session, novel therapies for cold agglutinin disease on Monday. So here's our patient, um, and you could see we've completed her workup. Her cold agglutinin titer was markedly elevated. C4 was not detectable, so she had ongoing complement activation through the uh, classical pathway. All right, so this patient was treated before sutimlimab was available, and uh, she actually got rituximbendamustine, and she had a great response. Uh, and she's been in a sustained remission for over five years. Second and third line therapies, again, if they've, if they've received rituximab or they've failed rituximab, uh, rituximab and bendamustine, if, or if they've relapsed, um, certainly you could consider a clinical trial for these patients, um, or you can place them on sutimlimab, which is approved, at least in the U.S., it's FDA approved. Some key takeaway messages. Again, CAD is a rare but very burdensome disease, complement-driven, um, mediated uh, or complement-driven autoimmune hemolytic anemia. Uh, treatments for CAD are really different than those we would use for warm-mediated hemolytic anemia. Uh, Rituxx, Rituxx bendamustine can induce long-term remissions. They don't work for all patients, but they certainly do have significant immunosuppressive effects, and particularly in the COVID era, that's something we worry about. Um, 
because they don't respond well to vaccines. Um, and sutimlimab is the most extensively studied complement inhibitor for CAD. And with biweekly infusions, it normalizes the hemoglobin and reduces the need or eliminates the need for blood transfusions. And I think that's all we have. And we'll, we have a bunch of questions that you've already sent in. And then we'll take some additional ones from the audience. Yes. Um, there is one question, uh, one of the submitted questions. Uh, would you give maintenance rituximab after bendamustine rituximab? Uh, no. Uh, and there are two reasons for that. Uh, first, rituximab maintenance has not been systematically investigated at all in cholecystic disease. Second, uh, if the rituximab bendamustine um, uh, treatment was successful, uh, the expec expected um, duration of response is so long that I wouldn't consider rituximab maintenance. And it would only c contribute to the immunosuppressive effects yes. of, that the patient would experience Definitely. without benefit. Um, someone asked what the boundaries are between uh, Waldenstrom's and CAD. So Waldenstrom is a true lymphoma, and hemolytic anemia is not as big a component of that, even though they have a high IgM. They don't have, they, they don't have cold agglutinin disease. So in cold agglutinin disease, the antibody, the IgM is, is directed to the red cell. Yes, I agree. And an additional distinction is there are some histopathologic morphologic features that uh, differ. Uh, there are cytogenetic features, features that differ. You can learn uh, more of that by seeing the poster uh, by Anishka um, Moetska uh, at the main congress. And the MID88L265P uh, uh, mutation, which is positive in virtually all cases, or at least in more than 19% of cases in Waldenstrom, is usually not present in cholecystic disease. So that's, in practice, a good distinction. And then there is a question, any indication for anticoagulation as primary prophylaxis? Uh, question mark. If thrombosis, unlimited anticoagulation, indicated as long as hemolysis is going on? Uh, question mark. NOAC or vitamin K antagonists? Uh, could you well, answer we, that? Yeah, we don't have a lot of experience. Um, there's no data. Uh, we do know that if we treat, especially if we treat with a complement inhibitor, you shut down the hemostatic activation. So it's another advantage of using something like sutinlimib or pegcetacoplan or ecolizumab in these patients because it'll shut off the hemostatic activation and you won't need to anticoagulate. Um, if they're not treated or if they have ongoing hemolysis, uh, we would look at D-dimers, that's the only measure you have of hemostatic activation that you can get, um, unless you have a research lab. Um, so you can look at that, and if the dimers are elevated, you could consider using prophylactic anticoagulation if there's no evidence of clot. 
there's evidence of clot, then you have to anticoagulate. And then we have the next question, how to, different, how to di differentiate between cut and cuss? And um, I was invited to, to give a virtual talk in Japan on that topic, and uh, I also did the same in Austria, and I talked for, talked for half an hour. So I think uh, I would be, be somewhat shorter now. Um, but uh, it's an, uh, a good question. And... Um, in most cases, the distinction is very easy. In, in CAS, uh, you have in most cases uh, an, a hemolytic anemia secondary to a mycoplasma infection or an Epstein virus infection or recently to a COVID-19 infection. Um, uh, uh, or you have a, a hemolytic anemia secondary to an aggressive B-cell lymphoma and the distinction is then easy. The distinction can be more difficult if you, for example, uh, have the patient diagnosed by the pathologists uh, with uh, an SLL, that's uh, a CLL lymphoma in the bone marrow, or a lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma, as was mentioned in another question. Um, then um, the, the most controversial may be if the patient is diagnosed with a lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma, because if that diagnosis if that diagnosis is correct, the patient will usually have Waldenstrom. But we also know that if patients are diagnosed, if these patients are diagnosed with an LPL lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma uh, by uh, decentralized multiple pathology laboratories and the diagnosis is LPL, um, if you have a centralized revision by a pathology lab used to diagnose the cold agglutinin-associated uh, um, lymphoproliferative disorder, the diagnosis will often be um, revised. So I think that uh, the histologic LPL diagnosis, Waldenstrom, is often overdiagnosed in, in these patients. Most of them turn out to be MUD88 negative, and most of them are cold agglutinin-associated LPD, not Waldenstrom. Do you classify patient, patients based on severity? If so, how do you treat them? How do you treat them? Rituximab, combo, or sutimlimab? I think yeah, either I of think, us could... Yeah, I think yeah. you want to look at what's the severity. If it's because they're hemolyzing, then you want to think about using sutimlimab in that setting. Or, or some, since that's the only approved drug, I'm going to use sutimlimab, uh, because that's going to shut off the hemolytic process within, within a week. Whereas the chemotherapy takes a while, it takes at least six weeks to see benefit. So if the severity is because they have a lymphoma and the lymphoma is what's making them sick, then you would go with the chemotherapy first. But or there's no data on, or there's little, very little data on combining treatment. Actually, there is a really interesting um, question that I thought we should um, address. And can you use sutimumab preoperatively to mitigate the risk of hemolysis um, during surgery? That's a fascinating question. Yes. 
Yes, and maybe we don't know for sure, but uh, logically it should be feasible. And there are, in fact, one case report uh, where it worked very well. So probably the answer is probably yes. And to add, uh, there is another case report that indicates that if sutimlimab is not available, you may also try ecurizumab because if the patient has a severe exacerbation uh, during or after surgery, it is an intravascular hemolysis, and sutimlimab may be effective in that case. Right, right. So, um, oh, oh, sorry, ecurizumab may be effective in that case. So one thought is that, uh, assuming this is not emergency surgery, you could at least get two doses of sutilumab in so that the levels are good before the surgery and make sure what we do with PNH patients, for example, is make sure their ECU gets in the night before they have their surgery or their RAVU before they have their procedure. So I would probably see if there's a way to delay the surgery to get them onto treatment and then go ahead with the surgery. But I think it's really, it was a fascinating question. Then there is a question, um, a colleague who thanks us for an excellent lecture and uh, asks, what is your experience about cat and children? Um, the answer is, my experience with uh, cat and children is that it doesn't exist. Uh, cold deglutinin uh, mediated autoimmune hemolytic anemia in children is always CAS. And you should be aware of uh, also the PCH to confirm or exclude PCH by doing a Donut Lansteiner test. And then there is a question. I have a 65-year-old CLL stage O, uh, stage uh, zero, um, with cold gluten hemolytic anemia, uh, do you think it's secondary to CLL, or is it a primary cold agglutinin disease? Uh, again, um, if this is a CLL, so-called CLL, uh, with only a CLL lymphoma or SLL in the bone marrow, and the patient uh, does not meet the hematological criteria for CLL, uh, then I will question the diagnosis. Is it a CLL lymphoma or is it a CAD-associated LPD? So it may be a primary CAD. Um, and uh, in addition, um, the differentiation uh, has probably no consequences because a CLL, which you see only as a bone marrow disease with no clinical manifestations, uh, not even uh, being a stage one, uh, stage A, uh, then the CLL should not be treated it in, uh, by itself. It's the hemolytic disease that should be treated in that patient. And I think uh, to treat the patient as primary cut uh, will, will work uh, perfectly well. Uh, if, if you treat, if you choose sutumlimab or B-cell direct treatment, depending on the patient characteristics. Then I uh, have a question here, which I think I will pass to, to Dr. Weitz. 
uh, is cut associated with increased mortality. Um, yes, it is. And um, that's why untreated, these patients get, they probably die of thromboembolic complications as well as profound anemia with cardiovascular complications. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash WQY860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi.